traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, here we go in three, two, one. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. I'm Jeremy Jackson, host of the Sports Medicine Broadcast. Kim Lowry, a registered dietitian here in Houston, is going to be talking about sports nutrition myths with Ryan Collins. We are live at the Sports Medicine Update 2023, and this one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash nutrition myths. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash nutrition myths, where Kim's going to talk about one of the workshops that she hosts, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes there. So look for that later. Ryan? Kim, thanks for joining us. Uh, we get the opportunity to hear a uh, talk about sports nutrition myths later today. So just wanted to get a chance to talk to you uh, specifically about uh, what you do, the, the populations that you kind of see, and then obviously these myths, I'm assuming you uh, hear all kinds of crazy stories and yes. information from these uh, these students and these athletes. Uh, so let's hit on some of the hot topics. Obviously, uh, we have uh, male and female athletes, yeah. right? Uh, both of them have uh, different sides of the uh, equation. Some of you know, guys want to get really big and really strong, and then uh, they want to you know, put on the right weight. And then you have some areas, uh, female athletes, who tend to not want to put on weight. And they have all these uh, myths about exercising and bulking up and then trying to avoid certain things. So, you know, today I kind of want to hit on some of those topics. Um, so let's start off with, uh, let's, let's start off with our male athletes. Um, uh, protein, protein intake. Uh, we talked about, uh, or we, we talk about uh, the appropriate amount of protein and how to get that in throughout a diet throughout the day. Uh, is there a good amount? Is there a right amount? Yeah, so there is. Um, so when we're talking about protein, um, first thing like athletes always want to look at is their total total protein intake. Um, so how much are they getting in a day is going to be kind of that first box that they want to look at, and it depends on the it depends on the athlete. If the athlete is like um, kind of what you're referencing, if they're trying to they want to bulk, they want to put on muscle, they been taking anywhere upward toward 2 to 2.2 grams of protein per kg of body weight. So um, a lot more than a lot of times many of the athletes that come to see me are doing. Um, So that's kind of that first, making sure that they're getting enough in the day. Um, When it comes to putting on weight too, or like even if it's muscle, I think that's what is – if they're already getting enough protein, usually what the misconception also is, is that it's total, total calories. So there's this like thought that like, oh, like there's a, so yes, there are certain, I think the most requested thing I get from athletes, like male athletes is I want to put on muscle and no body fat. Like sure. just the, the hardest thing in the world, just muscle. <laughs> and it's really like that in itself is somewhat of a myth. Yeah. So there are strategic things that we can do to definitely maximize the the amount of muscle, amount of protein. Um, spreading your next step would be timing, spreading your protein intake throughout the day and getting the optimal dose for your body size, which um, generally is somewhere 
around um, 0.25 to 0.3 grams per kg in a sitting, depending on somebody's body size there. So that would be like the next thing to optimize. Um, but after those things, it's, you know, also they need to be in taking enough calories, you know, to put on muscle. It's an energy generating process. So if they're not in consuming enough calories, they're not going to see the, they're not going to see the, the same gains they would if they were eating enough. Um, and with it's, so we can make, we can do that through like what they're eating. So maximizing the choices they're making. I, the example I usually tell them is like, you know, we could get more, we could just get your protein really high and then supplement the rest of the calories by saying, go, go eat some fast food. That's probably not going to be the best way to do it. We still want to make sure we're giving them, you know, we're maximizing the options they're choosing. Um, but ultimately like with that, yeah, there might be some body fat that they put on. That's just, you know, there's not a magic formula that you're only going to put on, um, muscle. Um, with that too, it's like looking further, like what their performance goal is. I know I personally am working with a lot of high school collegiate athletes. So performance is, you know, that's the priority. It's not a bodybuilding contest. It's not a, so I'm sure that, that that's not the area I work in. Like there are ways that, yeah, you do that. To, like you can have that body, you can maximize that body type through your diet, but we're also talking about performance. Um, that's we're going to have to balance making sure they get, you know, have enough carbs, they, you know, energy going into their sessions. So with this, in, to sum it all up, they should be looking at total protein. Um, again, if they're trying to put on muscle somewhere upward toward two, 2.2 grams of protein per kg, um, and then spreading that out throughout the day, every protein every three to four hours um, and getting enough calories. So going back to your nutrient timing, is there a uh, – um, is there a suggested window of time or is it more like a barn door where you have this greater amount of time to get in that protein intake before and after an exercise? Yeah, that's, that is a great question. Um, yeah, that's also another, uh, misconception. So the research is mixed. Um, a lot of some studies show, yes, if you intake protein within an hour of finishing your exercise session, that leads to greater um, muscle development. Other studies show there is no difference. Um, kind of where we're at right now, what we do know is that, that we're more confidently know is that um, you can tap into muscle protein synthesis about every three to four hours. So consuming total amount of protein matters in their day and then spreading it out, trying to get protein every three to four hours is going to benefit them from to benefit them in developing muscle so no there you the, the thought that you need to get it within 30 60 minutes is not really that hasn't been proven and so for the athletes and parents and coaches if you say every three to four hours give us some suggestions for high protein snacks and meals that we can help to distribute throughout the day yeah, that's great. Um, so snacks, um, things like nuts, nut butters, um, low-fat cheese sticks, um, Greek yogurt, that's a really good one, um, especially if somebody needs a high, like a higher dose of protein uh, per serving. Um, deli turkey, the like pea, like, or, like even a turkey sandwich. Um, the like Sargento balance breaks, P3 packets, those all are going to have um, good protein in there. Um, you can also do like 
protein bars can be appropriate, protein shakes. Um, that's where I try to encourage athletes to do a mixture. Um, but there are times when, yeah, that's more, especially if you need something like shelf stable in school. Um, if you're a high schooler, um, that might be the most practical. Um, in terms of meals, like things like, um, you know, maybe making a pasta dish and adding chicken, chicken in, or, in there. Um, doing like um, burrito bowls that have whatever meat source you like, um, chicken, steak, um, beans would be another plant. If you're a plant-based um, athlete, doing some kind of, um, you can even make like um, like a. They have recipes out there that use lentils. That is like essentially like a meat sauce, but it uses like a lentil. So like pasta with like a lentil meat sauce as a substitute would be awesome ideas. Does my wait? Let me ask you something real oh, go, quick. Go ahead. All right. So at my school, kids love ramen. Okay. Okay. So you said pasta and add chicken, and and you know as we're talking about, I really can't afford to like feed all the kids, and so like we sell yeah. ramen, they come in, and they buy it. Um, what could I add or offer them to add on additional to ramen that I would have to be able to keep in the high school athletic training room? You know, we have a fridge, uh, and I try to avoid the microwave. So is there anything I could add to specifically ramen? Yeah, so it's gonna sound kind of weird, but you um, like peanut butter. Doing like uh, I've, if you the app I use a lot to get a lot of like easy recipe ideas for like high school, college age, tasty app. Um, if you look up like, I don't know, call dorm room ramen. So um, tasty app. The tasty app. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can find on there. So not all of it is like maybe relevant for athletes, but you can find some good stuff. So ramen is one of them and they shows you how to make essentially like a peanut sauce from the peanut butter. So it's like, you're just like mixing it in and melting it when you're cooking the ramen in the microwave. So that could be an option. Um, I know again, sounds kind of weird, but is something you can, if you need shelves, if you need shelf stable, yeah. that would probably be my recommendation okay. of experimenting with that. But other, like if you don't, if you're at home, um, or if you have a little bit more access, um, adding like eggs to it, um, adding chicken, um, or even like peanuts by themselves doing that, that would be a way to increase the protein there. Does my whey protein have to be grass fed? No, it does not. So there are a million different types of, uh, companies that are selling whey protein, casein protein, all of the above. What's a good way for an athlete or a coach or a parent to know that it's a, it's been registered, it's been approved, it's a healthy option for that type of supplement? Yeah, so in like grass-fed, all this saying is like, I mean, grass-fed has no regulation. So just because it's grass-fed, like doesn't mean it's better, necessarily better for you, that it's higher in, you know, it, or it's, you know, going to metabolize better and help you reach your goals more. So when you're looking at a, so generally if you're looking for a protein powder, the ones that I recommend, um, whey protein, um, that's going to be, that has, um, we're talking about, especially if you're trying to recover or build muscle, it's tapping into that muscle protein synthesis, which requires leucine. Um, so whey protein has, um, has been shown to get into that muscle most the leucine from whey protein gets into that muscle very quickly to help step into tap into that. Um, if you're looking for a plant-based option, pea protein is um, pea or a soy protein are pretty similar as well. Um, when you're picking out the actual supplement, so those like that's the type. When you're looking at the supplement, what you want to 
look for is something that is third-party tested. So either it's informed sport or it's um, NSF certified. Basically, that mean, that ensures that it's been, like what's on the label is what's in, in the product. Um, so you know you're not getting any um, additional, like if it's not been cross-contaminated with something that's not supposed to have. That could definitely be relevant if any, if it's an athlete that may get drug tested. That's very important. But then too, also like, I know everybody doesn't have access, you know, doing your, doing your research, ideally trying to touch, you know, pick a sports dietitian's brain because not just, you know, now we know, okay, it has what it says it has in it, but it doesn't mean you need all that stuff. Like you don't need all the extra, like a basic whey protein is, you know, that's like muscle milk. That's pretty plain Jane is fine. You don't need it to have like all these extra probiotics, vitamins, et cetera. It might not actually be doing anything yeah. for you. So growing up, um, big myth that hopefully has been cleared up, but you know, it would be great to hear from you. Uh, creatine is bad for my kidneys and liver. Ah, yes. You know, so it's, it's a common supplement that's added with protein yeah. when you're dealing with recovery and muscle building. So for these guys in high school and college down in all these supplements, uh, and then they hear these horror stories, right? What's the latest and greatest on creatine? Yeah, I'm happy you said that because as we were talking earlier and I said I was trying to pinpoint what I was going to talk about today, that was it. That was the one I was, um, I guess I couldn't think think of on the spot. So, yeah, so creatine um, is, so the kind of common um, concerns with creatine are going to be it's a steroid, causes kidney dysfunction, Um, increases risk of injury and all of that has been um, disproven specifically with the renal dysfunction where that started from is there was one case control trial where somebody um, there 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 was renal dysfunction but he had a pre-existing kidney condition so that's the part that most people don't um, like that's like the piece of ev- the evidence that makes a big difference. So since then they have done tons of trials on creatine and there's no evidence to support that there's a risk of renal renal dysfunction. Same with like in- eating too much protein. That's also um, a concern too. Um, so that's been disproven. The only like consistent negative side effect that they see in their research is um, weight gain. So oh, and which is minimal couple pounds so pending which pending the athlete might make a difference if it's a you know a runner who's maybe concerned about their power to weight ratio may not be as in you know that might not be for them but if for most athletes that are in the market of using it um because where the benefits are at and things of increased muscle um increased strength power those athletes that minimal weight gain is really not you know that's not a deal breaker but that's the only consistent "Quote unquote negative side effect that they that they found. So everything else has been disproven. Um, I think what creatine. What p- sometimes people don't you get freaked out by it because it is a supplement, um, but it also like your body naturally produces creatine, and you also get it from you know in a, like meat and fish. So it it is a something that naturally occurs in food. Now that of brings you open up opens up another box of well can i optimize my diet through food absolutely that was my question is yeah. you know these high school athletes uh think supplements are necessary for me to get bigger and stronger and faster yeah and that's where a lot of times most of the high schoolers that come in to see me they have room 
to work on their diet first. There's definitely room to um, optimize their total protein intake and op- through food before we, you know, dive into the supplement. So now, Doritos and chicken fingers and fries aren't going to do it for me at lunchtime. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's not, we can definitely improve. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's a balance. Um, but yeah, like I, I think the biggest thing I would say with, it's not even just that the, like the meal that you just described and it's them not eating breakfast. It's them skipping, skipping meals. That really is what's the first concern that we're not concerned, but the first thing we need to fix is when they're not especially if we're talking like high school athletes, high school boys who want to put on muscle and weight, like they'll be like, oh, I'm eating so much. And I was like, okay, what'd you eat for breakfast? Oh, I don't, I don't eat breakfast. So when's the first time you eat today? Oh, one o'clock. So, you know, they're up at seven and they're not eating until, until one. And like, yeah, you can, like, I'm sure they you know, eat their parents out of house and home when they get home for, for dinner and having tons of snacks. But it's, you know, it's still in terms of getting enough protein, that's not going to gonna cut it and even calories with how much they're doing and talking about growth so um they're eating throughout the day is a challenge um optimizing their food but yeah i have you know creatine is a conversation i've had with high school athletes there are athletes who are you know improve like doing well with their foundation or at least moving that right direction and where yeah adding creatine could be um beneficial when you're when it is time to have that, if it's appropriate to have that conversation, what they should look at is, um, one, the type of creatine. So really there's tons of creatines out there, creatine monohydrate. That's where the, you know, the support in the research is. So like the micro crystallized creatine, all that, like don't want to be, that's not, there's not evidence that that's any better or if it's working. Um, so creatine monohydrate, and then they should be looking at the dosage. So it's, uh, um, there is um, research out there about, you know, doing a loading where you do 20 grams of creatine a day, you do that for a week, and then you move into a maintenance of five grams um, per day. Um, really, it just depends on how quickly they're trying to saturate the muscle. And you don't need to cycle this? I'm sorry? You don't need to cycle on and off of creatine? Can you stay on? Something? So you can, yeah. I mean, it depends on the athlete's goal. Um, it really depends on the athlete's goal. Um, Does it have any effect on endurance? Um, so right now there's, they've shown that there's an increase in, um, glycogen storage. So where that could, I guess I'm not as familiar right now where if it's, I want to say, I don't, I don't, I'm not as familiar with that research. I know it can increase glycogen storage. So, I mean, there's maybe room for that to look into that further, but So it's not something that you're strongly recommending for your endurance athletes? No, it's not no. something I personally am recommending, no. Um, I'd probably optimize protein, just general protein sure. for them first. So, so moving on to our endurance athletes, something that's talked about but probably not understood as well is carb loading. And is it necessary? And then how's, how do you best optimize that for a run? When do you do it? What's the time parameters and things like that? Yeah, so carbo loading, yeah, it's like everybody – say like oh i'm eating pasta yeah pasta party right yeah pasta party and like and i don't want to take away because i think i grew up i ran cross-country track i'm a distance runner so like that's near and dear to my my heart so like please keep having your friday night pasta parties before the meet like that's a fun experience for you as an athlete um but we're talking about true carbo loading um what that is is trying to super saturate 
the the glycogen stores in your muscle and that takes like 48 to 72 hours so that's not just one high carb meal that's um multiple high carb meals um to saturate the muscle so anywhere between 10 to 12 grams of carbohydrate per kg of body weight we're talking about so that's a lot more than what they most people are getting in their average what they're probably getting in an average diet um and so yeah doing that over the course of 48 to 72 hours and the athletes that really benefit are those if they're going above um they're going to be in sustained exercise for above 90 minutes so there's not really um a need for a 5k to or 10k to follow that true and tried um carbo loading they're not going to deplete their glycogen stores um in the length it takes to run those distances but if we're talking about like a half marathon um mo i was pending the speed but most people are the average person i want to say most people professionals are definitely under 90 minutes but the average person is probably running over 90 minutes for a half marathon so maybe they would benefit um I'd say half marathon is kind of like that gray area. The marathon distance always be beneficial. Um, but, you know, it's a, it always would be beneficial whether I do it with an athlete. Depends on a couple of factors. Um, one, their comfort level with it. Um, I always like to trial it out beforehand. You don't want to just go have them do it before their big, you know, race they've just trained for. And because it does um, it, it does cause a little bit of fluid retention. It could have some... Um, risk of just like minimal GI issues. So I always like to have them try it out in training with one of their long runs first. Um, yeah, so whether it really though, if you're gonna be running over, going over 90 minutes, it's something that we've done. Um, and then the other piece to that, that's the other, is a lot of times people think it's like, oh, I just, it is increasing your carbs, but you wanna, like your total caloric intake should be staying about the same. So if you're normally, not that you need to be counting calories, but just for that, this is going to make it easier to visualize. If you are normally intaking 3,000 calories, that's you'll stay at about that amount, but your percentage of carbs should increase. So it's not like, oh, let me just add on another 1,000 calories worth of carbs. You're probably going to decrease that from um, fat, which is usually the, what I will do, so less fat in that week, and replace that with carbs. So a lot of these myths have to do with food intake, calorie ta intake, supplements, and things like that. And we're dealing with a population in high school and college, uh, males and females, who have more than just their sports uh, life and performance going on. They have body image issues and things like that. Can you kind of speak to how it can affect males and females? Yeah, so um, when it comes to, like, you know, body, poor body image, disordered eating, that can – it's often looked at as a female issue – um, but it's definitely, um, it's an anybody issue. It doesn't, disorder, eating disorders do not discriminate um, whether you're a male or a female. Um, I think it's part of why we, it's just how, we've, how we have looked at them. There's, thankfully, they're doing more research in males, and they've, they're finding anywhere up to 32% of male athletes dealing with an eating disorder. Um, and when you think about that, it's, you know, the, you know, pressure of sport, um, especially when we get into these weight, weight sensitive sports. So there's a weight class and you, you have to make weight. And I think I see this a lot in high school, high school wrestling where you're, these athletes, they're a lot of times their bodies are still growing. Um, and I think it's easy to overlook that. And they come in and they're like, well, I got to cut weight to get 
back to my weight class and I was like, did you grow since last year? Because you're just like looking at him and I'm like, you look pretty tall and you're telling me your weight class, like that seems, and like, oh yeah, I grew like four inches. Well, it's probably not, that's, you know, not realistic for you anymore. Um, But that's, that's hard when they've, you know, had success there um, to attach to that. And I think it's, you know, with, with sport, it's so like, we want it to be like, we always want to, like, we want to know the outcome. We want to do everything we can to control the outcome. Um, And when things start be, you know, becoming out of our control, it's easy to look at how can I change my body? How can I, I performed like, especially if we're, say the sports, any sport there, you could be dealing with disordered eating, but like sports where we see it a lot, again, is those weight sensitive sports. So like a runner, for example, you know, they ran like their freshman year, they, you know, it was so easy. They ran so fast. And then they, you know, start going, going through puberty and they slow down a little bit, which a lot of that is actually natural. We're talking about females and they think, oh, well, I have to get back to that. Like, well, that, that's what it was. I, you know, I was, you know, looked like this then. Um, so it's really encouraging them to get through, ride that wave. Um, male athletes, it's, I think understanding like my, if I can like leave listeners with anything is educate yourself on the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder um, or just disorder, even disordered eating. Cause that's, you know, that's where it starts. So if, you know, you have an athlete that comes in, drastically changes their eating pattern, all of a sudden they're not eating meat. If they've lost a lot of weight, if they start talking poorly about their body, whether it's a male or a female, like take that as a, a red, you know, antennas should perk up a little bit. Um, and have an environment where, like, it's it's open, where people feel comfortable, athletes feel comfortable coming to talk to you, especially males, because with males, male athletes, a lot of the, the messaging is, you know, you're, you know, don't be emotional, don't, you know, be strong, be, you know, no pain, no gain, and eating disorders are looked at as emotional, so they're, you know, to open up about that is, it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. All right, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash nutrition myths. You mentioned to Ryan before we started the workshop um, that you host. Yeah. So tell me just about that briefly and then how somebody can find that. Yeah, so um, it's called Lean In, Rise Up. We do gear it toward female athletes, so adolescent age. um, So anywhere 12 to um, 12 to 18 generally is our age range that we're targeting. Um, and the workshop is partnered with myself, my colleague, um, Meredith Swerson, um, and um, two sports psychologists, um, Michelle and Lenny Waite. Um, what we, we do during that workshop, the, the purpose of the workshop is to empower young female athletes um, with their fueling in their body. So we talk about kind of some of the, you know, changes that they are going to go through through an experience as a female, um, how that may impact their athletic journey, um, empower them with like good nutrition information. So, you know, what are the things that you should be doing to take care of your body to maximize your performance, um, kind of dispel some of these myths, things around like amenorrhea is a sign, losing your periods, a sign of fitness, you know, teaching, educating them that like, no, that's not, that's a, that's a red flag. You should talk to somebody about that, you know, bone stress injuries, you know, yeah, that might be a nutritional issue. Um, issue. Our sports psychologists, they um, they talk more about, like, 
they'll take them through some exercises about like their their identity. So challenging them to look at themselves as more than just an athlete. Like they have their athletic identity, but what else is there to them? Because that is something I think a lot of athletes, they become very one dimensional and they only see themselves in their sport. So challenging them to open up their view of themselves. Um, also like, you know, mental skills, like how can you deal with performance anxiety? How can you deal with this pressure um, that you're getting from, so getting maybe in school from parents, from, from yourself. And so that's, I think it's a really great opportunity for um, female athletes to learn not only appropriate like nutrition that they need, but also, you know, the mental skills to be able to, you know, keep themselves healthy for, um, and well for the longevity of their career. And how would somebody find out about that? Yeah. So um, if you're interested, um, you're welcome to shoot me an email um, at kim.lowry, uh, L-O-W-R-Y, at memorialherman.org. Um, I can give you more information. Um, we also will post it um, on, we've posted it on social media, on Instagram. So you can follow if you would like to follow me. Uh, my Instagram is um, kimruns underscore. So um you can message me and get more info there too. And then Meredith has been on here before. I think hers is still Meredith Darcy. Uh, it may have changed, but she's, yeah. she's also been on before um, on the podcast. Yeah. So check out Kim or Meredith if you want to find out more about that or for your student athletes. Is that something they have to be in person or is that virtual as well? Yeah, we've done it both ways. Um, so we've done it with teams um, in person. We've done it virtual. And I guess too, like it's, um, We've done it over, we've done it as a one day workshop. We've also done it as a, we've broken it up and done it over two days to kind of, we're, we're flexible with, um, depending what the team, how they feel, team that we're working with, what they think is best. Some teams think we just do it, you know, we'll just block a day, we'll make a day out of it. Others, others kind of like to break it up, um, kind of the nutrition, the mental skills piece. Fantastic. All right. I'll have the links to those at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash nutrition myths. So for Ryan Collins, Kim Lowry, the sports medicine update live at the, the sports medicine broadcast live at the 2023 sports medicine update. That is a wrap. Thanks. First podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.